0: How do you stand out of the crowd how do you make sure that other people see your content and this is something that the most successful digital products have have done is they monetize signal amplification
1: welcome to structural shifts by aperture a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work society and business we take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world. And our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Today, your host, Ben Robinson, is virtually sitting down with Julian Lair, an ex Googler, startup founder, and current startup partnerships lead at Stripe. Julian and Ben get into all sorts of interesting behavioral psychology when it comes to buying and how digital companies can introduce physical elements to take advantage of signaling. And Julian is going to break down exactly what this is and how it works in today's episode. You will also learn Julian's tactics for staying productive and why he thinks email is underrated, why advertising budgets are shifting from celebrities to micro-influencers, why the Berlin startup scene hasn't quite lived up to the hype and more. Enjoy the show.
2: Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I wanted to kick off by talking about Europe and the European startup scene. So so your job at Stripe gives you quite a lot of exposure to, to up and coming European startups. And I just wondered how excited, how bullish you are about the European startup scene.
0: I'd say I'm generally an optimist. So I think things are moving into the right direction. Are we close to Silicon Valley yet? Probably not. Will we ever be Silicon Valley? Is, is like you know, is Paris or London or Berlin? Is that is there going to be a new or next Silicon Valley? I don't know. I guess I'm less bullish on that. Um, but you know, on the other hand, I don't think there has to be a Silicon Valley in Europe. So that would be my my answer, I guess.
2: And what about Berlin, the city in which you live? How, what's the startup scene like there?
0: I shouldn't be saying this, probably. Being part of that ecosystem, but I'd say Berlin in general has been a bit of a disappointment, in the sense that I think sort of like 10 years ago, we looked at Berlin and we're like, this is going to be the next startup ecosystem. It's you know, it's very cheap, there's a lot of talent, there's a lot of international talent, and there's a lot of crazy people. And crazy people will work on crazy ideas and you know the next big thing will look like a toy first and we'll see a lot of like very interesting innovation from Berlin. And we haven't really been seeing that at all. Like in the sense that the most successful companies in Berlin have been sort of like rocket internet type copycats, uh, which is interesting. So this is famous Peter Thiel quote of like, we were promised flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. And in Berlin, it's sort of like we were promised flying cars and all we got was a guy trying to copy 140 characters. So I wonder, you know, where's that... Crazy innovation that we were promised. I don't know if it ever will come. I think there's a couple of reasons why we haven't seen what we expected. But I thought that was interesting.
2: What, what are those reasons then? Because it sounds like you've got all the ingredients, right? You've got weirdos, you've got talent. It's cheap enough for, for people to, to 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 live and and you know inexpensively. So it sounds like it should all be coming together.
0: Well, I wonder. And this is sort of my pet theory is. I wonder if the low cost of living is actually more of a barrier and if the high cost of living in Sa- in San Francisco you know is more of a feature than a bug and it, like hey there's high cost of living so you have to be serious about the work that you do and then on the other hand there's very little to do in San Francisco like quality of life is pretty bad there's not much of a nightlife there's not great parks you would spend a lot of time in so in a lot of cases, the best place to be is literally your office. Whereas in Berlin, there are all these distractions. There's great nightlife. There's great bars. There's great parks. There's a lot of other things you can do, and so you don't need to work hard to enjoy all of the benefits because it's so cheap.
2: And also, I guess what you're saying is, if you know, if, if it's very cheap to live, you've, that gives you a long runway, right? And kind of takes away that pressure to be, you know, to be doing and getting things done every day.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You don't need to race. Venture capital from day one. You can just you know see what see what happens. I've seen a lot of people who've moved here with the intention to start a company, and then they get just sucked into the nightlife and they do some other job because like you know life is pretty great. You know, I think there's another Peter Thiel quote. It's like people move to Berlin in their twenties to retire. That's not necessarily <laughs> a bad thing, right? It's yeah, like, it's a good thing for a city to have great quality of life. It's just side effect of that is we'll probably won't see as many companies as in other ecosystems.
2: And then, why, why do you think Europe hasn't produced sort of more top of the food chain platform companies?
0: I don't know if this is a question about platform companies. It's more about sort of like larger companies in general. And, and part of that is probably you know maybe lack of funding might be one reason. There is another, um, it's like other things. It's like you know the average European might be less well, more risk averse than the average American. Maybe. But I think the larger problem is that it's just a very fragmented market. So if you're a German entrepreneur, you'll probably start a product that works for the average German consumer, and that is, you know, is a big market. It's a big enough market to raise venture capital, but it's not the same as as the US. And it's not just language barriers, but there's like different user behavior. Like in payments, for example, this is really interesting. And this is something we see at Stripe, of course. Is you know the the average German uses very different payment methods than a person in france or in the netherlands yes. for example and there's a lot of these like tiny differences so i think it there's an interesting trend in eastern europe actually where these entrepreneurs there because their home market is too small or too insignificant they start selling to u.s consumers or businesses from day one and they actually pretend to be a u.s entity so they have like U.S. headquarters, which is like one guy in SF or New York, but then the entire team is somewhere in Romania or Belarus, cheap engineering talent, but they just sell to U.S. to the U.S. market from day one.
2: How confident are you that we can overcome that fragmentation? So I've been noting that over the last few weeks, there's been a sort of number of initiatives coming out of the European Union you know, to try to overcome these obstacles that startups face when they do business across borders. Do you think this is something that you know, we can fix? We can make it more kind of a homogeneous to
0: market? Well, I think you can fix parts of it. And I do think that on average, you know, people's English skills probably improve. And so you can just release an, an English product and that's, that's going to work for most markets. And I think those things will get better over time, but I think that it just takes time. I'm like I'm optimistic in the long term. Probably not so much in the short term.
2: Okay, Carry on talking about platforms. So, you, so you, your your last two blogs, which I've really enjoyed, have both been about Shopify, or at least the e- e-commerce, right? You know, wh- when we t- when when you've analysed Shopify, you sort of you know correctly identified that it's a platform. It's not it's not an aggregator, but in a way you sort of suggest that that might leave it open to, to an aggregator, right? To somebody who might sit on top of it and kind of suck away its margins or gradually kind of move downstream and you know and, and gobble up some of its market share. And then you've also talked about Shop, the app it just launched. So how do you see Shop? Do you see Shop as, as an attempt by Spotify to try to aggregate demand and therefore protect you know its business or go upstream to protect its business and its margins?
0: Yeah, Shop is interesting. So I think people have misinterpreted what Shop is. So Shop has been interpreted as sort of like a demand aggregation play. It's sort of like a discovery platform, and you log in and you see different product recommendations across different Shopify stores. I don't think it is. So the way I see it is you can only really discover shops that you've bought from previously. So it seems to me that the idea is more to connect with businesses. That you've purchased from before to increase lifetime value, which is one way to, you know, work against high user acquisition costs from aggregators in the in the channel, which are you know Instagram, Pinterest, um, etc. So this is how this is how I see shop. That being said, over time I could see it becoming more of a discovery platform, perhaps. I think that is interesting. It's definitely something that I, I would assume Shopify is interested in experimenting with. The question is, you know, how, how successful will that be? So I think Ben Thompson had a, had a few good articles on this. It was like, they should focus on the supply side. There's very few cases where the supply side aggregator has then successfully become a demand side aggregator. It's just not what they're good at. It's more of a distraction. I don't know. I don't. I don't disagree with him, but I think it will be interesting to see Shopify trying things in that space because I do think that there's room for innovation in the product discovery space.
2: I suppose the argument is, you know, if they if the, if they just remain a platform, then they can sort of build massive economies of scale, right? But as you yourself note in in your in your article, is it's those that aggregate demand always have a stronger position than those that aggregate supply, right? and i suppose I suppose the argument is if you're a platform you kind of don't exist to the end consumer right You just you know no, nobody should theoretically know who Shopify are, but nonetheless you know it's it's if its job is to serve those businesses as best as possible, then that might mean over time that they have to become a demand aggregator right otherwise there's no way out of paying the aggregated tax to to acquire new customers
0: well it it depends, so I don't think. I don't think you have to become a demand aggregator to be successful as a platform that aggregates supply if you're able to diversify you know, demand side, the demand side. So if demand was spread across hundreds or thousands of different, different channels, then it doesn't matter. Yes, there will always be a tax that people have to pay, but that's, that's just normal. I don't think there's a way around that. There's always going to be some user acquisition cost. You have to pay your distributors, in a, in a sense. It becomes dangerous when there's one or two very powerful aggregators like Instagram, and they capture all of the value. I think that is, that is a potential risk. Not so much for Shopify itself, but for its individual shops and, and suppliers.
2: In the second part, so it was a two-part blog, and the first part blog was really talking about these dynamics, right, of, of you know, how does Shopify coexist with, with Facebook, with Instagram? And then the second part, you were talking about Shopify in, in the context of mimetic theory. What, what is mimetic theory and how does that play out with influencers and helping, you know, helping curate better recommendations for us as consumers?
0: So, mimetic theory is this theory from this French philosopher called uh, René Girard. A few people might be familiar with him. He has gained quite a following in, in tech in recent years because he's sort of like one of Peter Thiel's mentors. And basically, the theory is that what sets us humans apart from other species is that we, we observe others and we learn by observing and copying other people or people around us. And according to Gerard, that also includes copying what other people desire, what they want. So basically, what we do is we look at someone that we admire, and we look at you know what are the things that they have or the things that they want, and then those are the things that we want as well. Which is not something that we are aware of. Like we think there's a direct relationship between myself and an object that I want to have. So what he argues is that it's not a direct relationship, but it's more a triangular relationship. So there's a so-called mediator that I look up to. And then I look at who, what, what does this person have? I want the same thing because in the end, I I sort of want to become that person. So the object that I buy is more of a means to an end. I'm just buying that thing to eventually become that person. If you take that theory and you look at the way that e-commerce works, it's not really set up that way in the sense that if I look for a product on Amazon, I just get a list of products. I can rank them by relevance. I can rank them by price. I can't really rank them by what I apparently am interested in, which is who of my mediators is using which products.
2: And also, the, but that's true on any platform, isn't it? Which is, I mean, it's particularly acute on on Amazon because you have to start with an idea that, you know, I want to buy a Blender, for example, right? Whereas, you know, like it's easier on Google or, or other platforms to sort of you know to search for, for for you know for a variety of things you know what's the what what's the best um blender right rather you know and so and what you're saying is there's actually a third way right so rather than rather than just kind of know what i want and seek the cheapest option on amazon or have an idea of what i want and seek you know recommendations from others and uh via google you're saying there's a third way which is you know i want to see what can west what blend what blender can west uses
0: Right, uh, or any other influencer for that. Yeah, matter. Beyonce. Oh. Or I, was just um, yeah. I think
2: you use Kanye West in your article. That's why I mentioned Kanye West. Right,
0: yeah. right. So yeah, yeah. Like a mediator could be a celebrity. It could also be a friend or someone else you look up to. But if you if you think about Girard's theory, it it's basically, it basically basically perfectly describes what influences are. Like the name is is perfect if you think about it. So basically, a lot of the, the way I see a lot of Shopping um, or e-commerce decisions are made by browsing an Instagram feed and sort of going through a feed of mediators and look at what they are interested in and that's what I want to buy as well. Which is exactly why my Instagram works so well as a user acquisition channel for Shopify products, especially because you know the products that are typically sold on Shopify are things that are, you know, visually appealing. They're products that you didn't necessarily knew you wanted in the first place. So I I I think that's why it works really, really well. I think there's a bunch of other products that aren't necessarily discovered on Instagram, but they're discovered Twitter, for example, blogs, newsletters, um, etc. Podcasts that you would then go to Amazon and sort of like try to find later. But I still feel that there's potentially room for an aggregator that specifically just does product recommendations based on people that you follow
2: yeah and the way you'd say it is they would have lists right of the thing of the products they're using and all the products they recommend
0: yeah exactly so i think i think if shop if shop app eventually does become a product recommendation engine i think that's that's what they should try to build so like collections or lists of things that I might be interested in, based on people I follow on various social networks,
2: because again, it not only it not only sort of differentiates them from from Amazon on the one hand, which is really about the cheapest and knowing sort of ex ante what you want, and Instagram, which is you know I don't want to say clutter, but it has many many you know people sharing many things on it with with something which is dedicated to to a curated list of recommendations from influencers exactly exactly and I think there's a
0: there's a few products who've tried to build something similar none of them have really been successful so you know may, maybe there isn't room for a product like that maybe that's not something that people want to use, but I do wonder if there is room for a, a product in that space
2: and how do you how do you square that with like authenticity because the sort of you know the big you know the big Buzzword, right? Is authenticity, which is, you know, people are sort of, you know, they're they're becoming skeptical when they think that a, an influencer is paid to promote a product. So, how would this sit? You know, if you, if I had a, if I was as, if I was an influencer, and I had a list of products I'd recommended, how would you, how would you as the consumer be able to, you know, infer whether or not that they were genuine recommendations or paid
0: for recommendations? I think that explains some of the trends that we see in online advertising, where a lot of advertising budgets have shifted from sort of like very big influencers or celebrities almost to more of like micro or nano influencers that only have a couple of thousand or a couple of hundred followers because that is perceived as being more authentic but that you know that could also work in a product recommendation engine you know it doesn't have to necessarily be someone like Kanye West that i follow it could be literally the guy next door that i think is interesting
2: what about voice? So you, you also wrote a blog about you know emerging platform opportunities. Why do you think we haven't seen more breakout applications with
0: voice? I think the mistake that we have made is we've looked at voice as a new kind of interface that replaces a normal screen or other type of interface. And I just don't think that that's that that makes a lot of sense in the sense that talking to an assistant just just takes a lot more time and is let, lost, you know, less convenient than doing things on a screen. There's no room for discovery. I have no idea which voice cam- commands I could use. We might get there at some point if these voice assistants get better you know, with time. A bit bearish about voice as a primary interface. What I do think is interesting is voice as a secondary interface. So one of the most interesting applications that I've seen in the the voice space was at a hackathon where a team built a voice interface for StarCraft. So the idea is that you're so busy with your hands on your keyboard and your mouse that you would use an additional interface to command your troops with a couple of voice commands. And I wonder if there's room to you know, replicate that for other applications? What if I could sort of edit my Word document as I'm writing it with voice commands? I think that's there that could be something interesting in that in that space. So I think voice is interesting. It's just not just not an not a primary interface. When you look at finance, what what's what
2: where do you see the big platform opportunities there? Do you think do you think ultimately finance is something that just gets embedded in other products and services? You know, are you, you know, do you think that we will always have a kind of interface directly into finance? Or do you think that, you know, for an SME, it's easier to sort of, you know, take a loan out through, you know, through their accounting system or for if I wanted to pay you, it's easier for me to do it through WhatsApp. Do you think ultimately sort of finance becomes just a layer in the Internet kind of infrastructure, which is, you know, what a lot of people are predicting?
0: Well, I think I think there's a, there's a few interesting apps that do have sort of like a social component. Like if you think about Venmo or PayPal, to a certain degree, they're basically messaging, but based on on money. And then to a certain degree, there are a few interesting investment apps in the U.S. that have like a social component to it. So you have like a feed, and you see what your friends have invested in. So I think there's a few interesting ideas in the space. I, I think the question remains to you know if, if that's is is that a mainstream application or or not? I don't know.
2: I want to talk to you about content now. So, you, so you also wrote um, an essay talking about the proliferation of newsletters and podcasts. You know, it's it's quite difficult to to get access to the end consumer when you go via an intermediary like Facebook because it's so crowded. And then ultimately, you know, the idea that I guess it was a bit more popular last year, which is that you know, we're, we're kind of retreating a bit from some of these mainstream platforms because there's so much noise and, you know, so much trolling and et cetera. Right? So why, why do you think we have seen such a proliferation? Do you, I mean, do you, do you just think it's a function of all of the above or do do you have a different
0: theory? Well, I think, th- I think those are two different things. So the sort of like dark forest theory of people moving into private chat groups is yeah. uh, there's a different problem mm-hmm. there than... People wanting to reach an audience and not being able to because the platform is so crowded. So I think those are two different things. The main trend that I see is people looking for a new platform because they want to reach their audience, which is difficult if you're new to a platform. It's, it's very similar to that Shopify Instagram problem that we discussed earlier. If you think about it, it's, you know, if, too, if you rely too much on one demand channel, then that can become difficult. And so I think newsletters aren't necessarily better than blogs. It's just that they have distribution built in. And as long as people don't have too many newsletter subscriptions, then that's great for content producers. At some point, your inbox will become crowded with too many newsletters. And then you know content providers will look for the next best thing, which might be Telegram. It might be some other platform we aren't even aware of. It might be audio. But I think that's just like sort of like an ongoing thing where people just constantly look for an additional trade route, so to say.
2: Do you think that, or do you think in in this case, you know, actually because people will pay for newsletters, you know, they kind of have more su- sustainability this time, right? And because I guess what happened in the past was, you know, people weren't prepared to pay for content, so it was really difficult for people to to stick at these things for a long time, right? I'm just wondering, you know, in, since since there is kind of, you know, more willingness to pay for content, maybe we can create this, you know, maybe actually this, this theory of the long tail could actually, you know, happen after all.
0: Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's room for that. I think, you know, big, there's 7 billion people on this planet. So even if you have like a super tiny niche, you can probably make a living. But, it, but I do think that we will see bundles um, over time uh, in the newsletter space or content space in general. Because there yeah. are, you know, some power laws, and there will there, there can only be so many Ben Thompsons who actually make, you know, a decent living off of newsletters. I think that still remains to be seen how many people will actually be able to monetize or you know, make enough money to, make you know, make that a sustainable source of income.
2: And, and if we if we again compare it with the sort of Amazon versus Shopify kind of analogy. If, if Substack is, is Shopify, the kind of the Facebook of, of newsletters, what is that? That that's, is that Facebook itself? Or do you think that's a gap?
0: Hmm, That's, that's a good question. I guess, you know, maybe your inbox will be that, you know, if you receive a hundred newsletters, will there be a dedicated newsletter inbox in your Gmail account? And will it just rank those newsletters by? By date or will those be ranked by relevance or will there be ads so that your newsletter shows up on top and uh, so it's like a separate newsletter I, I wonder if google is working on a on a product in that space that, that would be interesting and then yeah I guess, I guess the question is where do you discover newsletters in the first place there's a product called stomp i believe is trying to build sort of like a demand side aggregator for newsletters um i'm i'm pretty sure we'll we'll see someone trying to to build that discovery engine maybe it's maybe maybe that will be substack um itself trying to build that
2: because you've you've written a lot about this about email right it's almost like because i suppose we think email as being a tool that's kind of a bit old fashioned right because we've had you know it was it was kind of, you know it was the first use case for for the web in many ways right and everybody has email and in some ways we're dissatisfied with email, right? Because you have this constant struggle to keep up with emails and but you seem to think that emails could almost be like this meta tool that sits above all these, you know, these other productivity tools, which is, you know, in the in the work that we do is is a is a problem, right? Because as you said, right, you know, we're using Trello, we're using Slack, we're using all these different tools, Teams, Zoom, you know, and it's like how do you how do you, how do you keep track of everything? And one of your you know, one of your ideas is that we don't have to reinvent a new tool. In fact, we, you know, email might very well be the right tool to do that, or to perform that sort of meta function of aggregating all these, you know, all the, all the tasks and information and and conversations from all these other different applications. So, how would how would that play out in your in your mind? So, I
0: think of email and calendar and to dos as sort of the same thing. Sort of like different sides of the same three-dimensional coin, sort of. Yeah. And people have built great to-do apps. They've built great calendar apps. They've built great email apps. But nobody has really integrated the two. I think Superhuman are in a, in an interesting spot where they could build that product. So basically, what they've done for those who are not familiar with Superhuman is they have a command line interface. So instead of having, you know. 100 different buttons in the interface, you can basically trigger a command line interface and then just write whatever action you want to do. And with a bunch of like really clever keyboard shortcuts, that just makes you very, very effective. And so I wonder if we'll move to a world where we can trigger certain actions directly from your inbox. So something that we've seen you know, in the last couple of years is we can... Now snooze emails, and they come back, and so the emails become to-dos. But if we want to interact with their actual content, we still have to switch to whatever application we've received the initial email or notification from. I think what we'll see next is, you know, when you receive a GitHub notification, you can basically close an issue directly from your email, or you could, you know, maybe if you receive an invoice, you can trigger sort of like a payment action that pays that invoice instantly without you having to switch back to your to your bank account. I think there's there's a lot of interesting room for innovation in that space.
2: All conversations just get aggregated up to email and you just control everything from there.
0: Could could be email, could be something else. Like people people thought that Slack might become that that place where yeah. um, sort of that meta layer that's that sits across different apps. It hasn't really. I, th- I find Slack to be mostly a distraction. Email is better. So it's sort of like I'm in control to who I answer when. So I think email is, for, for me, at least, it's sort of like an underrated tool. Uh, I Thank think you. if if designed right, I think can be can be super powerful.
2: And in, in in a way, this this problem of you know of, of kind of of fragmented. Productivity applications is, is getting bigger, right? Because as we try to coordinate the activities of of, of workforces that are increasingly distributed and not in the office, then it becomes you know harder and harder to do this, right? And and and, and, and more urgent at the same time.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. This is why I think like Microsoft is probably in a good spot there as well, given that they you know they do have their own email client and they have all these different productivity apps. And they have started to build some of these things that I'm describing, but I do hope that there will be, you know, something like Superhuman that combines different products that aren't necessarily from the same company. I'm amazed at how well Microsoft's
2: done. I mean, I'm, I suppose I'm I'm not surprised they've done well, but I'm still surprised they've done as well as they have. And for me, Microsoft is like you know the the kind of the case study for 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 bundling, right?
0: Oh, 100%. Because,
2: yeah, yeah. because, I mean, none of those applications work very well in themselves. And and it's kind of, I suppose, where I'm slightly s- surprised is, you know, I always thought we were moving to this world where, you know, since everything's easier to integrate now, th- we'd increasingly sort of buy the best of everything. But still, the power of bundling should still never be underestimated, right?
0: Yeah. I guess the problem is that it's it's risky for any business to open up their product to other to other apps. It's very easy to become commoditized, and then there's like that one tool that just makes you redundant, sort of. But you're still an input, but it's sort of like the demand aggregator that captures all the value. So I think sort of you know, as as a startup, I'm just like probably very reluctant to open up my platform to others. I'm just like trying to build it myself, and so we end up with all these different. Uh, wallet gardens that don't really interact with each other, which is which is a pity.
2: And just just while we're still on the product on the topic of productivity, y- you seem to be somebody that you know you know based on reading everything that you've written, somebody who's who's extremely focused, right, on on productivity and making sure that you waste as little time as possible and automating things. And so, what kind of what kind of productivity tips? I mean
0: what would have been your major discoveries in the last few months? So I've been looking for a to-do app that works for me for basically the last 10 years. And I've never found one that really works for me that I found useful. And so I've actually made my email inbox, my to-do list. So for to-dos, I just send an email to myself and then I snooze it for you know the day that I think I want to get that task done. And that works pretty well for me. I mean, I already spent quite a lot of time in my email inbox. So that's just a good place for me to keep my to do's as well. And then I do work a lot in Google Calendar as well. So yes, I have my meetings in Google Calendar, but then I would also add specific to do's to my calendar. So at the beginning of each week, I would sort of go through my to do's and my email inbox and then block out time in my calendar so that basically the whole day is, is blocked with different events. So I know exactly when I need to get what task done.
2: And do you have notifications set up to come into your
0: email? I don't. I've turned almost all notifications off. So Slack direct messages still turn up, but I I would then sometimes just close Slack for an hour or two when I want to get deep work done. The other thing that works really well for me is just using actual you know, pen and paper for for like my writing, for example, I do on actual physical paper, just no distractions. So
2: you write it in pen and paper, and then and then copy it, yeah, across. mostly, mostly.
0: Okay. Otherwise, it's me writing two sentences, and then like it's like, oh, let's see what's new on Twitter, and then I waste <laughs> thirty minutes on Twitter. Yeah. So.
2: Okay, and that's that's how you because a lot of people. I mean, there's this constant challenge of synchronous and asynchronous, right? And the problem with email is it's it's synchronous. So so basically what you're saying is you don't just switch off all the apps because you don't trust yourself. You actually take a pen and paper, write your, what you're going to write, the blog, the essay, and then you then type it up afterwards. Yeah. It just
0: makes me a lot more productive.
2: Okay. And then music again is something you found some that's made yourself, that's, well, that's conducive to productivity, right?
0: Yeah. So I haven't, I haven't actively Looked for music that makes me more productive. It's more that I noticed when I looked at sort of like music data, and I I log everything that I listened to with Last FM, I saw this trend that there are certain genres of music that have just increased over the years, like classical music, ambient music. And so it seems like that's a good indie or it's a good proxy for my productivity. I can sort of look at which weeks or months i spent most of my time listening to music and then compare that with my notes of like how productive did i feel on a given day and usually that that correlates pretty well uh, which is interesting
2: so you you were uh, every month right you share data on you know what you've been reading what you've been listening to but you also go sometimes go further right so i, I can't remember what you called it but during the during the quarantine, you or you release data on all sorts of different things, right? Your sleeping patterns, your commuting, what you've been eating, and I suppose one one question is, you know, how how do you even track that data? And then the second question is, you know, how why is it you choose to be just so open about sharing all this information? It's almost like a sort of mini Truman Show, right, where you just sort of lay yourself open for public consumption. So, so how do you do it, and why do you do it?
0: So I basically I use a pretty big air table spreadsheet for most of the things that i i track so i have about 50 to 60 things that i track on a daily basis almost like mental well-being physical well-being media consumption how fit i am all sorts of things uh, i'm just interested in and people assume that that's a lot of work it actually isn't so when i started with this initially which is like more than Seven or eight years ago, I carried around a physical notebook with me, and I would just take notes as things happened. And then at some point, you just get into the habit of, you know, being more present and sort of like realizing what you do. So, at the end of the day, I know exactly how many cups of coffee I drank or how many beers I had on on an evening, just because I have like subconsciously <laughs> count counted those. Um, and then each morning, first thing I do is just open the spreadsheet, put in all. The data from the previous day which takes me i don't know three to five minutes tops that's it and yeah I've, I've decided to share some of that data i found that people find that type of data interesting there's only certain things that i share publicly so there's a lot of you know, things that i that I track. there's a like personal data that i wouldn't share publicly on the internet how many books i read or how many podcasts i listen to i'm very much willing to share that with other, other people. It doesn't seem like uh, giving up on a lot of privacy.
2: What where, where do you track all that stuff yourself? Is it again in pursuit of sort of you know productivity and well-being?
0: No, not really. So it started as more of an experiment to just find out how much you do in a year. So when I started with this, I was just curious: how many cups of coffee do you drink in a year? How many people do you talk to? How many buildings do you enter? How much time do you spend in the shower, etc. So I had this pretty big project where I tried to quantify pretty much every single aspect of my life, and I did that for an entire year. And then as I was doing it, I sort of figured out that A, the data is interesting. There's like all these interesting patterns that you can see. But B, it's it's almost like keeping a diary, I would say. And it just it makes you a lot more present. You so of the last seven years since I've been doing this, um, it feels like I remember a lot of day-to-day activities than I did previously,
2: and you don't feel like the act of recording it changes your patterns in themselves. You know, a bit like they've recorded. You know, they've, there's a lot of evidence that this happens in economics, right? The minute you you know you start to record something, then people's behavior changes, right? A bit like you know, if I were to record how many beers I drink, I might you know actually reduce consumption, right? Hundred
0: percent. So initially, when I when I started with this project, the idea was you know for the data not to influence my behavior but then it definitely does like you realize that oh actually you know i do drink a lot of alcohol i should probably reduce my alcohol intake uh, etc so over time i've then started to introduce yearly goals where i say you know at the beginning of the year is like this is how much i want to swim this year this is how this is the maximum amount of alcohol that i want to drink etc and then the data just becomes a, a good way to see if i actually achieved all of those different goals.
2: So this might seem like a like a kind of random uh, change, shift of gears, but Z- since since we have been in quarantine, you know, I don't, I can't remember what the exact um, figure was, but I think Zoom went from sort of 10 million daily users, to 300 million daily users or whatever. And probably as we come out of, of quarantine or, you know, some places already have, right? But as we come out of quarantine, you know, likely, We'll see, a redu- you know, a reduction in the number of daily users, but it feels like, you know, we've accelerated that trend towards remote work. We've, 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 you know, we've we've accelerated people's comfort levels with with video conferencing. And I'm just wondering, do you think do you think Zoom is a big platform opportunity? You know, do you think do you think we'll get, you know, all those uh, yoga teachers that started doing yoga t- classes online and suddenly re- realized that they could, you know, thanks to the internet, could reach a much larger customer base or consumer base and you know and I, and I suppose there's you know like hundreds and hundreds of other professions that have realized that they can you know they can reach a bigger audience right so do you think there's a kind of platform opportunity in zoom that maybe people have underappreciated
0: i think there's definitely a platform opportunity i do wonder if zoom will be the one who's actually building that platform i'm a little skeptical they don't strike me as a company who's been thinking about that i think they're busy working on other things and so but i I do agree that it's there's definitely platform opportunity in the sense that you could have you probably should have different interfaces for different use cases you know it's not just meetings but as you say it could be yoga instructors or you know whatever it is that 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 would need concerts yeah whatever yeah and there's there's all these like all these things that you can build on top of of Zoom. Whether it's like I think there's like a payment opportunity, so sort of like in-app purchases for Zoom calls, where you I don't know you can upgrade to premium content or different things as you are on the call. I think that's an opportunity. I haven't I haven't actually seen anyone building something in that space, but I think there's definitely an opportunity there.
2: And what about? audio in general because um so you you said that you listen to the podcast with um with brett bivens and you know one one of the things that he he talks about is that he thinks the ear is under monetized versus the eye do do you agree that there's a lot of sort of untapped opportunities in audio just because we can do it alongside you know it's kind of less all-consuming and therefore you know we can do it alongside other activities that that we do
0: yeah i think there's definitely an opportunity there like all that time we spent not in front of a screen we usually with airpods or some other headphones plugged in so um, there's definitely opportunity a to just consume content and then also to monetize that content i'd say audio is overall probably under monetized there's probably room for more i think spotify is in an interesting position there where they sort of you know it seems like they're trying to become the netflix of podcasts yeah I think there's room for sort of like an AdSense type ad network for audio ads that isn't really something you could build with podcasts being very decentralized. But if you did, if you had one aggregator dominating the space, I think there's some interesting monetization opportunities there for sure.
2: Are you bullish on uh, Spotify? Because Brett is super bullish on on Spotify.
0: Definitely, definitely in the non-music space yeah yeah in like for music they've been in a tough situ- tough spot given that there's only you know so many suppliers and they basically control what you can do and you know what you can monetize but everything that's not music i think there's huge opportunity to monetize and that's not ju- it's not it's not just podcasts right there's like yeah could be meditation apps, some other thing that we aren't even thinking about. Maybe there's room for some like audio-based social networks. Like, um, there's there's a few popping up um, these days. So I think there's still a lot of interesting ideas that haven't been explored yet.
2: Yeah, and that, I mean that's one of the things that I most like about your you know the, your monthly update, what you've been listening to, because it's quite you know it's getting better Spotify, but that kind of stuff's not very salient on Spotify, right? It's, it's not easy to see what other people are listening to. and But I suspect, as you said, right, like there was almost this disincentive to get people to spend too much time on Spotify because the more time they spent on Spotify, the more they had to pay the record labels. But when they have a more Netflix kind of catalog of of, of content that they own outright, then yeah, you know, you basically want to drive people to the to the site and have them spend as long on there as possible because, you know, because once it moves out of just listening to, to music they don't own, then they can take up, gross margins quite a bit
0: right exactly yeah
2: when do you listen to podcasts because i noticed that during quarantine you know thanks to all the data you shared that you hadn't been listening to as many podcasts as you normally would is that because you weren't commuting
0: yeah exactly so i usually listen to podcasts while i'm commuting so before and after work i've now started to basically go for a walk before and after work to sort of uh, simulate a commute and so my uh, podcast consumption has gone up uh, again as well, so it seems like we're almost at pre-quarantine levels uh, at this point.
2: I want to talk to you next about signaling as a service? So you, you wrote an, uh, another great essay talking about signaling and how you know signaling is you know very much a sort of physical or is mostly associated with with physical products and and talking about how we can translate that into the online world,
0: right? I read a super interesting book called *The Elephant in the Brain*, which talks about signaling and basically makes two arguments: is that everything that we do is sort of a signaling aspect. We're just trying to um, let people know that there's sort of like a hidden message in what we do, and that that's why we do these like actually do these things. And then the other argument is that we're not actually aware of doing that. So, classic example of this was like conspicuous consumption, where you buy a rolex watch not because it's a great watch but because you want to signal something about your social status and your uh, place in society sort of and what they what they claim is that it's not just luxury goods but like pretty much everything that you do has a signaling component whether it's green products that you buy whether it's you giving to charity basically everything that you do you just do for the sake of signaling something about yourself and so i wondered if that also applies to digital products, and if so, if that explains why digital products tend not to monetize as well as their physical counterparts. Um, The way I look at signaling is, there's basically three components to it. So the first thing is what I call a signal message. That's whatever you want to convey about, you know, by by using or buying a product. So if you think about a pair of sneakers, the signaling message is something along the lines of, I live a healthy and active lifestyle. Now, as a next step, you need some form of signal distribution so that other people um, know about that message you're trying to send. So again, with a pair of sneakers, you just wear them in public where other people can see them great works pretty well. This is why, you know, people are willing to spend a lot of money on sneakers, but not on socks. Nobody can see your socks. So you're not incentivized to spend a lot of money on them. And then the third thing is, you know, if everyone is wearing cool sneakers, how do you make sure that your sneakers stand out? So you need some sort of amplification to make sure that you stand out of the crowd in terms of, you know, in the example of sneakers, it might be some, you know, it might be a very unique design, it might be flashy colors, whatever. So physical products do really well having a signal message because, you know, they're tangible, they're physical, they just represent something. There's certain limits to your signal distribution in the sense that there's only so many people who can see you wearing a pair of sneakers, for example, just because it's physical. There's like this certain limit to that. And then signal amplification is also something that seems difficult in a physical world. Now, for digital products, it's sort of the other way around, where because they're intangible, you don't really have a signal message, or at least it's difficult to distribute that message to other people. So, if you think about a fitness app, which is also about having, you know, living a healthy and active lifestyle, it just lives on your phone. Nobody can see the apps on your on your home screen. So, therefore, the willingness to pay is just a lot lower. You wouldn't spend one hundred and fifty dollars on a on a fitness app, probably. What digital products have done, though, is what you just mentioned is basically signal distribution at scale. So what Instagram and Facebook and Twitter do is basically they allow you to share things about yourself, like what you you can just take a picture of your sneakers. And now, you know, a million people could potentially see that you own these sneakers. So that works really well. The problem is they can't really monetize that signal distribution. So... The more people you reach, the more powerful the signal gets. So, if you were to monetize that signal distribution, then you wouldn't reach as many people because there's only there's you know you're only willing to spend that much money on it. Now, there's a third thing which is signal amplification, which means that what they monetize is standing out of the crowd, which is goes back to the discussion we had earlier around you know if if you have so many content producers. How do you make, you know? How do you stand out of the crowd? How do you make sure that other people see your content? And this is something that the most successful digital products have have done is they monetize signal amplification. So it's a network that's free to use, but if you want to make sure that you stand out, that's when you have to pay. So for example, Tinder is generally free to use; anyone can join. If you want to stand out with super likes and other in-app purchases. That's when you have to pay. And that works really, really well for them. I would also argue that Fortnite is a similar example. So again, it's sort of a not really a game. It's more of a social network. It's free to use, free to play. It's not something that's common in, in gaming typically. It's free to win. That's also not, not common. The only thing that you have to pay for is signal amplification. So if you want to have like special skins that stand out or they have like these emote dances that make your character special that's what that's what you have to pay for Um,
2: did you ever read that article it was called um shared value transactions i have not no it's funny because it because it because this is what i thought of when i read your article which is like i looked at this from a different vantage point right which is you know actually the you know free to play is all you know and then when you charge you know for 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 add-ons it's all about kind of you know Maximize the number of users because you know you have network effects and so on, and then getting basically your you know your most active users to sort of subsidize the platform for everybody else. And you didn't need a, you know that many really active users. But actually, I think this is you know your take is is more interesting. It's almost one that I suspect a lot of people kind of you know overlook when designing applications, right? Which is you know it's almost like if, you know if you had a whole bunch of things that you thought of when you were strategizing. The signaling effect of your product and the importance of that in its in its in its marketing and distribution is critical, right? And that's that's one of the reasons I was so fascinated by the essay because I, I suspect that this is something that most people underappreciate.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and it's it's not a yeah it's not a difficult problem to solve. I think what's interesting is combining a digital product with a physical product. So I think that's something that neo banks such as N26 or Revolut have done really really well where if you subscribe to premium plan, you get a really nice-looking metal card, and that's what people pay for. The premium yeah. benefits aren't, you know, aren't that great. You get a few more free ATM withdrawals, but they don't really justify a 15, 17 euro a month price tag. What people pay for is to be seen with a nice card. And so I wonder if there's room for other products to sort of like introduce an additional physical element to their digital subscription you know if it's a fitness app maybe that's t-shirts or some other fitness gear that they sell together with with their subscription i think i think there should be more experimentation in that space
2: well one one of the podcasts we most recently recorded was on the whole craft movement right and uh, you know and we you know we sort of you know, which is a really big thing, right? This whole sort of move, you know, the, we, we were, we had a, uh, a couple of companies on one that does craft beer and, you know, we were talking about this movement as being sort of, you know, the, a function of, you know, of, of growing affluence of, you know, of the internet giving more information, uh, you know, and therefore enabling people to make better choices, you know, desire to have more sustainable products and so on. But I suppose there's a different take, right? Which is craft is just really about signaling. It's about signaling that I can afford better maybe or, I can, or I'm more worried about the provenance of what I eat and drink and wear.
0: I think, I think that's part of it. And then this is something I've been thinking about a lot. This is like, how do you marry the signaling theory with mimetic theory? Because they also seem to be sort of the same thing. Like you yeah. use mimetic theory to learn what you then signal later. And sort of like being, becoming a mediator that other people follow is sort of a signaling play. I think that's super interesting. I wonder if, you know, if that ex- it also explains part of it. So look at other people, you know, coming up with their own brand for whatever it is. And so I want to, you know, I want to do this as well. And so there's sort of like a network effect, like a mimetic mem- network effect where because other, because my friend has started a craft new brand. I want to have a, you know my own brand, perhaps, and this is ex- explains why we see all of these like micro brands in in general, not just you know not just for craft beer, but all sorts of things. And I and
2: I'm convinced that that's how you scale these craft products, right? Which is the end of the mass consumer, right? So we don't we don't sort of mass produce, mass uh, advertise, and mass sell, custom, you know, relatively standardized goods. Instead, you know, we do we 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 sort of cater increasingly to smaller demographics and so but but actually those demographics can be quite similar, you know, across many different locations. And how do you reach those demographics at scale without paying a load of money to, to Facebook and Google? And, and I think it comes back to your same point, which is you find the influences. So I think it, I, I really do agree that the signaling and mimetic theory all kind of, you know, they, they, they co- sort of coalesce
0: yeah, I, I actually think that the products in a lot of cases remain the same. They just have a different packaging and a different brand. So it's the same product, but you buy it for a different reason because you know everyone is a little different. And so you see a lot of these influences becoming brands. And so I think there's going to be an interesting trend where you sort of like modularize e-commerce where you don't buy from a specific shop, but you buy directly from an influencer. And the product that... You know, it's the same product that you would buy from, a, from another influencer, but it's branded in a slightly different way. So we buy the same things, but we buy them for different reasons. And yeah. It looks slightly different, even though they're just kind of the same thing.
2: Which again comes back to your point that if, if, if everybody becomes an influencer, you know, even if we, if we only have very small followings, then we do have this massive proliferation of influencers, which means we need a, an aggregator for influencers.
0: Right, right,
2: exactly, yeah. Julian. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. It was fun.
1: Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit Aperture.co. We are Strategy for the Networked Age. Until next time.